Hello, and welcome to the next session here at IIEX Behavior. My name is Priscilla McKinney. I'm so glad to have you. I have with me an amazing guest. We're going to talk about a subject matter that I know is near and dear the heart of everybody here at this conference, and we want to get great perspectives. So to that end, we've asked Ziva Goddard uh, to join us, and um, welcome, Ziva. Thank you so much, Priscilla. Great to be here. Thanks yeah. for having me. Absolutely. We're going to have just a great conversation. <laughs> so just let's keep it light. But we really want to hear about your expertise. We want to hear your experience. We feel like you have a finger on the pulse of what's going on uh, with behavioral science. And um, and so you're going to enlighten us. But let me tell you um, who are listening uh, a little bit about Ziva. She is the chief consulting officer at Cowrie Consulting. And um, she has worked with Amazon, Tesco, Fidelity, Sky, just amazing, amazing customers. So she's helped transform those experience, experiences for employees and obviously with behavioral science. So psychology, behavioral science and nudge theory. And some of us are, are huge fans. Uh, so she has a career that includes clinical psychology at the Institute of Psychiatry, organizational psychology at BNY Mellon, and behavioral science at Cowrie Consulting. So Ziba, we are going to get schooled here. Let's let's get prepared. So tell everybody before we get into the behavioral science part about it, just what is Cowrie Consulting and what, what is the aim there? Yeah, sure thing. So we started in 2016, so we've been going almost six years now. Um, and it, behavioral science is one of those crazy fields, I always think, that started in the public sector. Um, and the private sector were really late to cotton on. There's not that many examples where um, the public sector doesn't usually follow the private. So um, the government kind of had this stuff down and they were changing our behavior using all of these insights for years. Um, and what we saw at that time was actually the private sector was underserved. So clients like Tesco, Fidelity, Standard Life, et cetera, didn't have anyone um, necessarily consultancies and expertise to go to um, and tap into this incredible field um, of human behavior, essentially. Um, so we're a team of psychologists, data scientists, behavioral scientists, economists. We're big into our cognitive diversity um, at Cowrie. So we think that joining all of those skills, we get to better places. Mm -hmm. And essentially, the mission that we've got, Priscilla, is, is really simple. It's just in this kind of digital age, we're just finding that the human touch is getting lost often. Mm -hmm. And so we are on a mission, quite simply, to make businesses as human as humanly possible. Well, I love the point you just mentioned there about really being intentional about diversity. And I feel very strongly the bigger and bigger of a table that you build, the better and better ideas you get from everybody sitting at that table. Totally. And we're definitely proof of that. So, yeah, love it. I love it. So they're at Cowrie. They do a lot of different consulting, but tell me about the specifics of behavioral science and what are some of the initiatives that are being done for clients um, specifically in that niche? Yeah, so I think um, what we're seeing at the moment is behavioral science is kind of rising as an agenda item for businesses. I think there's real momentum at the moment. Um, and I think the way that we work with our clients is, is through usually like pilot projects. So we start with a proof of concept because if you explain these things and you show them um, how sometimes such small changes um, can have these big effects, they kind of don't believe it. 
until they try it themselves and they get some really awesome results essentially in controlled experiments and then they go okay there's something going on here in the brain that these guys might know about so we're really helping our clients to um, dig so really understand what's going on in the subconscious brain so psychometric techniques biometric techniques and neurometric shoving people in MRIs and and putting scary EEGs on their heads to understand what's going on in our subconscious and then fixing things that aren't working so well as well as teaching um, and building capability for our clients because what we tend to find is people start going gosh I really want to understand how to change behavior myself can you teach me all of this amazing Mm -hmm. stuff. It turns out that the people needing your help uh, to lead teams actually are humans themselves. They're needing to understand their own non-conscious behaviors and things like that. So what you mentioned something interesting there that, you know, that the uh, the public sector, uh, I'm sorry, the private sector was a little bit late to carry, uh, you know, to catch on. And so tell me a little bit about what you're hearing that's different. At this point, are you being quite chased by a lot of companies who are waking up and realizing they need behavioral science as a, a part of the whole process or, you know, from the span of the time you've been in this, what what are the things you're hearing? Kind of like tangible, you know, what, what it used to be that they used to say, ah, behavioral science, this, and it, compared to what they're saying today. Yeah, you're, you're spot on the money there, Priscilla. I think People, I love your term waking up. I think that's a really, really good way of putting it. Um, We used to find when we went into businesses in 2016 to 2018, we'd have to school people essentially on behavioral science. People wouldn't have heard of behavioral economics, behavioral science, nudge theory. And what we're finding now is that there's just such momentum. It's, It's almost, I think the pandemic has risen this field in people's public consciousness because they've been aware that the government were doing things to keep us all staying indoors and locked up um, and wearing masks and all of these big behavioral changes that we've all had to undergo over the last year Mm -hmm. has meant that a lot of journalists have been writing about this field. The government's been more explicit around um, the tactics that they're using with us. Um, And so what we're now finding is that businesses are actually hiring heads of behavioral scientists um, and and little teams um, to work alongside them. So, you know, my prediction over the next 10 years would be that this just becomes a real core capability, I think, in businesses. Um, Yeah. And and just, I'm curious, that, that doesn't mean that necessarily it will get siloed, kind of like, this is behavioral science and marketing, this is behavioral science and employee engagement, this is behavioral science, I mean, do you see that all of the departments will be able to benefit from behavioral science or do you see them just adapting in one particular vertical? No, I think it will be a mixture. I think they'll probably start in marketing. That feels like the natural fit for this space. Um, certainly we've broadened out. We're working across operations. We're working with boards in decision making. Um, so, you know, um, an employee experience, like, are we keeping our people motivated at work? How do people want to work? You know, how do we get them sort of shifting and changing behaviours um, internally, the way that performance is managed, for example? So wherever there's a human, there's an opportunity for behaviour change, right? So um, I think we will see it spread across. It will be one of those horizontal teams that ends up working with many, many variables. Right, um, right. Because 
I, I hope so. I hope you're right. And I hope the, the quicker it gets adopted, I think the better, um, because as I pointed out, humans work in every single one of those capacities. Totally. It <laughs> might be me falling prey to my natural optimism bias, Priscilla, but that, that's my prediction. I'll stand okay. by it. <laughs> okay, well, I'll, I'll join you in the optimism. So that's the positive side. Let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you've seen over the last year or so. We really asked you to come because of the experience. You have a wide, um, you know, view, a lens, you know, if you will, on what's happening across a pretty big sector. So what are some of those challenges that you've seen that you could share with us? Yeah, sure. Um I think three pop to the top of my mind um, when I think about this. So I think the first one is just digital adoption. Um, and I think this became more and more important, right? The more that, especially over the last year when we were kind of inside, we needed to start, you know, doing most things on our phone, ordering our groceries online. We didn't want to go into the supermarkets if we could help it, for example. Um, so I think the, the space that businesses are in at the moment is they spent a lot of money on gorgeous, brilliant digital platforms and products and services. And now they just need to get people using them and feeling comfortable, um, particularly perhaps older generations. So we saw this with um, online banking when it first came out, everyone said that they didn't want to use it because they were scared that um, of the, the security, they thought that their, their, you know, their things would be tapped into, their, their, they'd make mistakes. But actually what it ended up being, that insight that, that actually shone through was that people were scared of the internet, essentially. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to do it. So um, I think it's about um, getting people um, in the door, giving them an easy first step and getting them to see how um, positively reinforcing, engaging quickly and easily um, with digital services can be. Mm -hmm. I think the second one, and this is gonna be no surprise to you, is sustainability, right? So everyone's trying to um, get us acting more in, in a more sustainable way. Um, choosing more sustainable options, stopping to buy our plastic bags and taking in our kind of tote bags and our bags for life, um, and then choosing more responsible investments, for example. So we've been doing a lot of work in, in that space too. But I think the one that I find kind of, I suppose, most interesting at the moment is, and most important and relevant, is, um, you know, it's been a really difficult year for all of us. Um, and I think initially at the start of the pandemic, we saw people um, sort of panic taking their monies, money out of their savings and investments. They started to see the markets drop. They got this innate loss aversion um, and they were really poor at predicting how they would have acted. So even though they'd committed to those investments being in there for 15, 20 years, they suddenly worried about their life savings diminishing. And, um, and so what we've seen, unfortunately, over the last year is, is a lot of financial hardship. Um, with people losing jobs and um, and um, and all of the sort of struggles that they've been facing. So we're seeing a lot more vulnerable customers um, getting in touch with businesses. Um, so people that perhaps don't understand, don't have financial capability, people who have been addicted, gaming and gambling addictions have risen massively over the last year, really sadly. Um, life events, so lots of bereavements and people struggling with grief and divorces. Um, and then, you know, some, some health issues as well. So I think what I'm really pleased to see is that the financial regulators are hot on this topic and they're really sort of calling businesses out and going, how are you supporting these, these vulnerable customers? Mm -hmm. And how are you going to be having these more compassionate interactions? And I think that's something that understanding the psychology and the mindsets of these people um, will be really, really helpful going forward. 
Oh my goodness. I just, those are all three of them fascinating things. I'll underscore the first one that you mentioned about um, many new people who were maybe reticent to be online now being online. And we all experience helping our parents online in a very different way, right? Even our grandparents, whatever the case is. I actually, at a different IIEX uh, event, I actually interviewed Ioli Pretenteri from Gameloft, and she talked about the interesting piece of consumer insights right now where gaming became, you know, um, a much larger demographic group in the older um, demographics because of just everybody being home and siloed. But I like to get back to what you talked about, which I think is so just so at the core of what is the hope and maybe the optimism of behavioral science, what it can do for us as humans. Yeah is you're right, we really got siloed. We all had pretty much a horrible year. Um, I think I could say it, we all went through a collective trauma, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. Interestingly enough, I just got back from New York and it made me reflect on COVID differently because I thought about 9-11 and I was standing there at the reflecting pool and thinking, you know, it's rare than in a generation that you go through multiple collective traumas, but this global trauma we've all been through is there. So let's dig in a little bit deeper. I want to hear about this, this hope that we have for behavioral science, what we can apply so that you can reach and support more vulnerable customers. So tell me a little bit more about how you are doing this at Calvary Consulting specifically. Yeah, sure thing. Um, so I think what's really interesting is when we dug deeper into the kind of the, the biases, if you like, or the shortcuts that are really affecting these people, there were three that sort of rose to the top that disproportionately influence how these types of customers, how these people um, think and are behaving. And it's often not in their best interests, quite sadly. So for us, the first step is, I suppose, understanding what those biases are so we can then help and put in some behavioral interventions that help customers overcome these. And the first of these is cognitive overload. So not gonna be a surprise, but when people are more vulnerable, they've got a lot going on in their lives. Um, you know, they're, they're um, emotional, um, there are life events, they've got health issues. We tend to see that they have much higher cognitive overload or thresholds for being cognitively overloaded than, than, than others in society. Um, and basically, when we fear we're not going to make the right choice because we just have too many options and too much information and we're too overwhelmed, we actually do one thing, and that's to make a decision to do nothing at all. And we procrastinate. And that's often not the right thing for these guys to be doing. They don't feel empowered to make important decisions in their lives. Um, the second is um, that often when people are in financial hardship specifically, um, they have what's called a scarcity mindset. So this is what happens when we feel like we have too little. Um, having less enables us to do less. Um, and um, everything becomes heightened and more important in decision because we have this scarcity mindset. And psychologists have actually done lots of research into this. And they've shown that people in poverty or people with financial hardship actually 
um, have impeded cognitive capacity. So they, it's the equivalent of losing 13 IQ points having a scarcity mindset or actually losing an entire night's sleep, say for you and I. Um, so this is the way that they're having to make decisions under these sorts of circumstances. And clearly they need more support as a result. And the final thing is just these emotional, these heightened emotions that they're experiencing, what we'd call affective states in psychology, which is that we have these kind of hot and cold emotional states. When I'm in a cold emotional state um, on Sunday and I'm tucking into a lovely roast lunch, um, I can easily say that I'm gonna go to the gym at 8 a.m. the next morning because I don't have to do anything. But when my alarm goes off, um, I'm suddenly in this hot state where I need to get out of bed and go and get on a treadmill. And I often decide, 85% of the time, decide not to do it. But we're really bad at understanding how to behave in these hot and cold states and I think, these guys are often experiencing these um, scare, scary um, emotions, fearful, anxious emotions, mm -hmm. and are making decisions that are essentially not in their best interests. Mm -hmm. So knowing that, sorry, go for no, it. I, yeah, I was, it made me curious just as a, you know, a psychologist, do you feel like also that scarcity mode that people get in is, you know, for lack of a better word, really highly contagious, like it feeds on itself and, you know, kind of drafts other people into it? And that, what, what do you know about that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it can, it can definitely drift into public consciousness if, if people are talking about it. You know, we saw that with the panic buying, right? In lockdown, we saw that with, oh my God, people are posting photos on social media. The media are um, kind of talking about the fact that we're all panic buying, showing empty shelves. And we suddenly felt that because these items were scarce, toilet roll, um, being one of them, that we suddenly valued it way higher in our lives than we've ever valued it before because it was it was running out. So for sure, we can we can encourage other people to have this scarcity mindset. But in relation to your own money, the scarcity mindset is quite um, individual. Um, it's it's quite an, an individual experience um, that you have, um, particularly in relation to um, losing your own hard-earned money and feeling worried about whether you have enough to fund your lifestyle, essentially. I find it interesting, if I back up a little bit more, something you said about this it, almost paralysis that mm. people experience when they are experiencing scarcity. First of all, they are under-resourced, and it's not just a feeling. And then this compounded by the feeling of scarcity, which is then a little bit of fear and those kinds of things. But um, one of my good friends, uh, Kristen Luck, she usually says in relation to business decisions that action brings relief. <laughs> it may not be the right answer, but you need to make one because, you know, that is a, a, a very positive sign of moving forward. So tell me a little bit more about that in action. Why, why, sure. why, why does the brain go to inaction? Because um, we, we, we're genuinely fearful that we're not going to make the right decision and an act of affirmation um, where we've got our own selves to blame um, is more scary than often doing nothing and sticking with the status quo, um, the status quo bias um, that we're, we're naturally kind of um, 
affiliated with um, and is innate in all of us. Essentially, these guys have a lower self-efficacy. They have a lower view of themselves, perception of their own decision-making capabilities. And therefore, this sense of loss of making the wrong decision often weighs greater than the, the gain they might um, actually have by making one. So I think you are spot on that a little bit of action is exactly what we want them to do. And rather, you know, one of the ways to counter this is rather than ask them to make a big decision, um, it's about doing something very small today that's acting as one tiny commitment device for you to get a foot in the door and make some bigger and larger decisions the more that you get some feedback and start learning about these things and feel supported. So mm -hmm. chunking up that process is really, really key. Mm. So uh, let's talk about that, getting feedback, starting the baby steps, <laughs> you know, getting the process going. So what results could you speak to for us uh, about these programs that you're doing? Yeah, sure. So the, the one of the first programs we've done is um, essentially what we were seeing in contact centers was because these guys were speaking to vulnerable customers so much who were worried about their money, who were worried about the health of their relatives, um, who had sadly had an event, is actually we were seeing the agents becoming vulnerable themselves because they were speaking all the time to these people who were anxious and scared and stressed. So what we wanted to do for those guys was, was create a really powerful and interactive tool for them to use for their conversations, essentially. And what we helped them do was essentially spot the signals, if you like, um, the predictors of vulnerability in these people. Um, so um, if someone was saying, I need my money now or I need it immediately, you know, that would be a cue that actually this person's not OK. And what we had was three very tailored conversations on a, on a traffic light system. So you might go, this person feels like a red person. They're in a bad, bad way. And we're going to take them through and have lots of interventions that are bespoke for them. So it might be one of them might be, OK, Priscilla, I can hear you need your money now. But let's um, let's just take a breather for five minutes. Go make a cup of tea and come back. So you're giving them a chance to dissipate some of this heightened emotion that they're experiencing by a five minute cool off period, essentially. Um, or it might be, um, you know, this person's not really understanding what I'm saying. They're clearly in grief and they're cognitively overloaded. So I'm just adding to it. So I might go, have you got a pen and paper in front of you? Do you just want to jot down these three things? All I'm going to talk to you about today are three simple things. Just write them down for me and then let's speak in another week's time. Those sorts of things to help people, depending on the level of vulnerability that they are experiencing. And for that, you know, we got some great feedback. I was really pleased. I mean, what I cared a lot about was the advisors on the phones felt more supported. Um, because these conversations are really difficult. So they were saying things like, yeah, you know, this guide really helped me um, with a customer who wasn't able to access their pensions, but I was able to reassure them um, and show them what they needed to do next and give them a small step. Or customers were saying, gosh, that person was so understanding and reassuring and personable, and they provided information so clearly for me at each step of the way. So those were the kind of um, qualitative pieces of feedback we were getting. Um, and then, you know, 83% of those calls were judged by customers to be good, great or excellent um, as a result of having these tactics and these interventions at disposal. So um, I'm really excited about what, what behavioral science can do in this space. You know, this is our foray into this really important field. So um, it's heartening. 
Oh, yeah, heartening. And I, if you don't mind, I'm just going to ask a little bit more of a personal question. <laughs> There's just so much empathy dripping out of this conversation, right? Because we're looking at a, a, a group of people who are vulnerable to a greater degree than you or I feel in this moment. But as we mentioned, we've been through this, you know, collective trauma and we all have felt vulnerable at this time or another. So um, I loved the piece that you shared where by giving um, uh, tactics and tools to the people who were serving those who felt um, who are vulnerable, the vulnerability in the person who was helping was also brought up. So when you talk about their, you know, the vulnerable people um, when feeling that that very deep scarcity, are their IQ literally is dropping. You yeah. know, you're able to bring that up, but when you're able to help someone, your IQ also coming up, yeah. and your sentiment and your affect coming back up as well. What are your personal thoughts here? I mean, is there something that motivates you toward this work? You you did admit already that you are generally an optimist. <laughs> <laughs> there was, to be perfectly honest, there was one call last year that really affected um, a few of us in the team that we heard um, on a, a, a body like this, at a conference like this. Mm -hmm. And um, it was um, this really powerful call that basically this woman had called up to sort out her finances with someone. And at the end of the call, she said, okay, I know what I'm gonna go and do now. And really sadly, she went on to um, commit suicide, which um, was very, very sad. But one of the things that it made us reflect on as a team after that, hearing that was, what was interesting is often when we looked at the research, people who were going to go and do something like that often do put their finances in order because they don't want to leave one more burden on the person they're talking to because it feels on, the, on their family and their loved ones rather they don't want to leave them financial burdens as well as all the perceived burdens they've put on them throughout their life so that's often a behavioral marker that something is going to happen and what was interesting is we were going god can we not start to predict based on the words the phrases um, the behaviors that people are using whether we can actually go and prevent some of this stuff from happening by better identifying these vulnerabilities in people. And, um, and that was the catalyst, if you like. Um, but, you know, just generally using behavioral science and nudge theory for good just feels like a good thing, essentially. Um, so much of these dark patterns um, and, um, and manipulation and connotations that we hear around behavioral science just doesn't feel you know right for us at Cowrie, but that's not what we're into and i think you can use this stuff for so much good so yeah i think does that answer your question yeah yeah and it just you know for me that's a that's a, a face to your practice as well um so you learned here that there were obviously great successes and obviously yeah. left with a lot more curiosity and a lot of uh, of thinking that there's something deeper. What what could, what else could we do? Let's we've just scratched the surface. So, what is yeah. next on the agenda to support more vulnerable people? What is your team thinking? Yeah. So I think um, the next stage is going to be um, about using data science, essentially joining up data science with human science. Um, that's kind of where we want to go um, and do something more about um, AI, you know, with AI. So intelligent compassion, if you like, um, and actually kind of um, using machine learning algorithms to 
spot the signals, the words, phrases, memes in conversations, for example, that are most predictive of vulnerability, and then arming these guys once they've once they've got um, a score for vulnerability for this customer, arming them with the tools to be able to deal with them essentially um, really, really well. Because there was a piece of research that came out that indicated across 48 companies, big PLC companies in the UK, that only 5% of customers are flagged as vulnerable. And actually what our regulator in the UK is saying is it's more likely to be 50% of people that are vulnerable at any one, one time. So we know that there's a gap in identifying these people and that's what we're really, um, we want to get in the game of doing using some funky um, AI and predictive um, analytics essentially. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I love it so much. Just as a big thank you for taking your time and speaking to all of the people who live, eat, breathe, sleep, behavioral science, <laughs> and giving us just a little bit of a window in on your life. I, I am curious, Calvary Consulting, who is the most ideal client? What, you know, who, who is it that should be calling your company? They tend to be really big big companies with big problems, <laughs> essentially, um, has been the kind of MO. Um, but, you know, the clients that we have really like to see that this stuff works. They like to see that we're running experiments and that we've got metrics. So we've got a whole body of case studies. Um, we tend to be dealing with sort of, sort of more pragmatic um, clients at, at big companies, essentially, um, who are naturally thirsty and hungry for new insights um, and, um, and doing things a little bit differently, perhaps, than they've done traditionally. Right. Well, as we leave, you have an entire audience here of behavioral scientists. <laughs> Is there any word of encouragement you've had since, you know, as we pointed out, you are an incredible optimist. So maybe we have any encouragement, but, you know, what would you say as, as they, you know, are working to try and get more companies, um, you know, fluent in behavioral science and more interested in really looking at the major benefits? Any Any encouragement you'd have to offer that crowd? I mean, the future's bright for me. I think we're, you know, it's it's not a nascent field anymore. It's happening. Um, you know, the doors open. Um, people are reading about this. They're watching stuff about this. They're learning about this in their own time. There's so many brilliant books coming out. There's so many brilliant behavioral designers. And I think the next the next iteration of this field is going to be behavioral design, essentially. So how do you take insights from psychology and use them um, to create brilliant experiences through through um, the power of design. And I think um, that's what we're going to be seeing a lot more of over the next few years, which I'm super excited about personally. Oh, I'm excited too. Ziba, thank you so much for taking your time. For those of you who just met Ziba, make sure that you go out on LinkedIn and connect with her. It's Ziba uh, Goddard from Calvary Consulting. And Ziba, thank you so much for your time. This has been excellent. We hope that everybody else enjoys the rest of the conference today. Thank you so much, Priscilla. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.